Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration, and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstravel.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. We're here on location in Spring Hill, Florida with Wayne Coe. And Wayne Coe was a chief warrant officer, pilot for the helicopter assault company of the U.S. Army. Wayne? Yes? Tell us about your childhood. Where did you grow up and how was outdoor <laughs> adventure a part of your childhood? My father was a Navy chief, and we moved every couple of years all over the world. So when I was a really young child, we lived in Cuba, and, and I grew up pretty much in California, in Southern California, and my father was a skin diver, so we started diving for abalone when I was 14, 15 years old with the first wetsuit that my dad made out of a, a newspaper for a, a pattern and then cut the rubber out and glued it to make a wetsuit so he didn't have to swim out and get abalone in the cold Pacific Ocean. And then I um, went to high school in Northern California and I competed for a seat in helicopter flight school in the U.S. Army and scored high enough to get a seat and spent a year in ward officer flight school at uh, Mineral Wells, Texas and then at Fort Rucker in Alabama and in the end I came out being a warrant officer which is a presidential warrant and sent to Vietnam for my very first assignment. So I arrived at the 187th Assault Helicopter Company, the Blackhawks, when I was 19 years old and had about 200 hours of flying time and was, uh, you know, like my friends say, I, I still had pimples on my face and uh, didn't shave. That started a flying career that lasted for, you know, about 14,000 hours, I guess, altogether. I uh, started out in uh, being the youngest helicopter pilot in the unit and flying the courier, they called it, where we went between the bases to, and towards the end of my career when I had been raised Mormon and, and didn't, didn't drink alcohol, so I wound up being the guy that uh, would fly the medevacs at night and towards the end of my tour. And I went from the 187th assault to the 120th to the Deans and was in Saigon when the Tet Offensive happened and I saw a lot of the war and I saw all of it from the air. So for me it was a matter of correlating what was in the Army Times and what I was seeing with my own two eyes and with what my parents and others were telling me were, were, was going on in the States. Wayne, you chose to go to Vietnam. You were at the top of the flight school, top of your class, and you chose to go to Vietnam because that's where all the flying was happening, correct? That's correct. You know, that was give the top few guys in flight school their choice of assignment to make that a, a something everybody wants. And the other guys went to Germany, and I went to Vietnam because I wanted to. I wanted to get over. I was afraid the war was going to be over before I got over there and had a chance to fly in it. Had a chance to, to learn my craft, as it were, to learn combat in a helicopter. Wayne, why was the U.S. in Vietnam? I'm still kind of asking myself that question. I know that when we were there, when I was in Vietnam, you know, I, I had Vietnamese friends, and I went to church with Vietnamese men, and we loved those people and thought they were delightful people. We never really did understand why we were at war with them. I, I used to wonder why we, 
you know, we, we would go out and blow up the jungle and, and make a lot of deaf monkeys and we'd have B-52 strikes and pulverize everything and we'd spray the whole country with Agent Orange to take the leaves off the trees. And after we sprayed this whole beautiful jungle country with Agent Orange defoliant and all the leaves fall off, we found out there wasn't anybody there. We knocked all the leaves off all these jungles and there was nobody there. Uh, well, maybe they were there before the leaves fell or whatever, but a lot of the things they did didn't make any sense to me now, and most of the things they did didn't make any sense to me then. And I never did understand why we were spending our blood on their land so far from where we were. I mean, I, I didn't see them as a threat to America. I didn't see them as a, as a threat to me unless I was there flying in their country. Wayne, let's go back to the first time you arrived in Vietnam. What was it like? What was your first impression when you landed in Vietnam? Well, I had two weeks off before I went to Vietnam, and several of my friends from flight school came to San Francisco, where I was from, and we laughed and partied and charged around. And so by the time I got on an airplane at Travis Air Force Base to go to Vietnam, I was exhausted. I had just spent all of my time charging around. And it's a long flight there. By the time you go to Hawaii, and then you go down to whatever the intermediate place, usually Narita in Japan, and then push on into Vietnam, you've been in the airplane for an awful long time. So when I got to Vietnam in a 707, they opened the door up and the smells of all the sewage and the heat and the humidity was like a wall. So here's the plane with air conditioning and here's this wall that's Vietnam. And they take us off of the airplane and onto a bus and the bus has chicken wire over all the windows. And I said, what's this all about? They don't want us to throw trash out? Laughing, thinking that was funny, and the guy said, no, that's so they can't throw the hand grenades in. And I thought to myself, wow, welcome to Vietnam. And they took us over to the, what they call the repo depot, where everyone who comes into Vietnam goes to the replacement depot, and they make sure you have the right papers, and then they send you to whatever unit they're going to use you in. And when I went to the repo depot, I went to the, the, you know, all the officers, all the enlisted men, all the Navy, everybody all goes to the repo depot. So I go to the repo depot and go in and they give me a blanket and some sheets and I go get a bed and promptly get the worst case of body loss I've ever had off of the bed that I got at the repo depot. When the 187th assault came down to pick me up that afternoon out of the repo depot with several of other guys I went to flight school with all went to the 187th with me. I'm scratching like crazy because I've got a full case of lice all over my body from the mattress that was in the repo depot. And then when I got to Tainan, which was about 75 miles right due north of Saigon, as we came in, we came in over the top of the Kaudai Temple and with its red roof and its beautiful grounds and came over the rivers with it all beautiful and, and the fields were all manicured and into our stark red laterite airfield where we sprayed defoliant on everything to keep it from growing. So in Vietnam, there's so much rain, it's so humid, you can drop a seed and it'll grow into something. But the army, in its infinite wisdom, we had come up with 2,4-D, or Roundup, they call it now. And they'd spray it all over everything, so that everything, there was no grass growing anywhere. And the land is uh, kind of a bright iron red, and they call it laterite. Most of the tropical countries that get a lot of rainfall have this laterite. Africa's got tons of it, mm -hmm. okay? And when we shot the approach and got into the thing, I realized I'm going to be living in a tent. Okay, so when I got to Vietnam, there was no officers club, there was no building to eat dinner in. They'd only been there from the States for about six weeks 
we just had tents and the tents were mounted on beer cans and every time it would rain the tents would sink another beer can in the ground and we'd lift them up put another beer can on top of it I'm sure someday an archaeologist is going to look down and see 75 beer cans going down into the laterite that we used to try and hold the tents up then we had rats and we had bugs and we had all of the other kind of vermin that came out of the city and over to the new pickings at the army base over there because at the time we were a little more sloppy with the way we handled our sanitary stuff and we were a little more sloppy with the way we handled our food waste. And as a result, it brought in the mice and rats and vermin from all over the place. So it was pretty wild. It was nothing to, to lay in your tent and see a rat walk down the side, you know what I mean, of the, of the thing looking for food or looking for something to eat. We lived 12 men to a tent. So tents were made for 30 people and we only had 12 in them. So we thought we were in the very lap of luxury. And while we were there, we built an officer's club, and we built a mess hall, and we built all of the enlisted men quarters, and we built our own officer's quarters. And so for me, I remember fly all day and pound nails all night, and fly all day and pound nails all night, and pour cement and do whatever. We would trade. We'd get guns from the special forces and trade it with the engineers for cement or plywood, and then we'd fly it back and madly build another hooch for somebody. And, you know, I remember the camaraderie of living with those men, and I remember the camaraderie of us flying every day in really seriously hostile conditions and really loving what I did and really truly feeling like that was where I was supposed to be and that was what I was supposed to be doing. I didn't really realize what a toll it would take on me while it was going on. I flew because I loved it and I, I did what I thought was important to do, but I didn't really recognize you know, the overall change of being around that much death that many wounded people, you know, that much craziness. I mean, really, truly, I mean, combat's chaos, and chaos really is just another word for insane. So, <laughs> so when you used to fly the helicopters uh, 1,500 feet above the ground so that you were in the range of being shot at? Yes, we had two things that we had to always keep track of. If we were above 1,500 feet, it was cool, uh, 70 degrees, and so you didn't have to be perspiring all the time. Mm -hmm. And it was also outside the range of small arms fire, so that a guy with an AK-47 couldn't just automatically sweep you down. But you could also fly low level in between the trees where you were going over 100 miles an hour and going past, so no one could really have a chance to shoot at you that way either because you, you were so close to the ground you were going by so fast. And a lot of times we flew low level because we had to go under artillery or we had to find something we were looking for or you know, that kind of stuff. So we either flew way up high at 1,500 feet and above, or we flew right in between the trees, low level, but never in between. In between was where everybody got, got shot. Wayne, let's talk about the different areas that you were covering when you were flying. Were you mainly around Saigon, which is now known as Ho Chi Minh City? And let's talk about the Kuchi Tunnels and also the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Oh, yeah, Ho Chi Minh Trail. I was stationed in Tainan, and it was 75 miles to the north of Saigon. But the helicopter I was flying was fast enough that they used us, you know, 100 miles south of Saigon. So the area that I worked in, or the AO I worked in, was the entire three-core area of Vietnam. And it had Pleiku and Ho Chi Minh City and Kuchi and Dao Tiang and all of those cities that were in the kind of the main farming area of Vietnam. And 
Then I also flew up to Wei Fuba with a bunch of money for the soldiers, for the mercenary soldiers uh, after Tet. And I flew all the way down to the tip of Vietnam one time when I took an Italian film company that was taking pictures and they wanted to see it from one tip to the other. So I flew the entire length of the country with them and showed them everything. And I had a chance to go down in a couple of tunnels. You know, when, when the grunts would find a tunnel, they'd call for the rats, the tunnel rats, and we'd go pick them up. They'd be somewhere. They'd be at Coochie or they'd be with another unit. And so they were all always ready to go. We'd go pick them up in a helicopter and take them wherever the tunnels had been found, and they'd go down in and explore them. And one time when we were really close to the Ho Chi Minh Trail, we had run across a really large tunnel complex. They said, go get a chaplain. I said, a chaplain? They said, yeah, go get a chaplain, a Catholic chaplain. I said, okay. So they had called on the radio, and I went back and got a chaplain and brought him out. And the chaplain turned out to be Mormon. He's a Bruce McConkie. He's a friend of mine. And, and I said to Bruce, I said, well, they, they wanted a Catholic chaplain. He goes, well, they're getting a Mormon one. He says, in the Army, all chaplains are chaplains. So I walked with him over to where the tunnel rats were and showed him you know, where they were and introduced him. And they said, well, we have a church down here, a really big church, and it has a lot of chalices and religious objects in them, and we didn't really want to touch them. We wanted you to come and take them and, and return them to the church. Was, a lot of them seemed to be very valuable. So we went down into the ground, down these little tiny tunnels, and I, I admit I was a little claustrophobic going down in those things. And I didn't ever realize how extensive they were until after crawling for a only just a few minutes, we went into this huge, big room with a big altar and a big cross with Jesus on it and purple drapes on everything and gold chalices and Bibles and books on stands and all that kind of stuff. And I realized, holy mackerel, these, this is a huge church. You know, this isn't a little binky dinky church. This is a big-ass church down underground, down in the middle of the jungle, in the middle of nowhere. Wayne, for those listening who don't exactly know why there are underground tunnel systems in Vietnam, can you enlighten them? Well, we had all the airplanes and all the bombers, and so if we could see it, we could take it out. So the Vietnamese basically built as much of it as they could underground. And when we flew into landing zones, they'd pop out of little tunnels that we called spider holes. And they put their hospitals underground, they put their troop stuff underground, they did their supplies underground, they did as much as they could underground. And they put them far enough underground that we couldn't blow them up with just a regular bomb from a jet plane. So we had to literally put men in the hole and go down there and plant charges in order to pull out of them out. Some were full of rice and some were full of weapons and one was a church. But all of them had a, had a different meaning and none of them were together. They were all spaced out so that if you hit one, you didn't get the others. And Wayne, you were shot down seven times when you were in Vietnam, but you were talking to me about how you guys always travel in packs, so you've always got someone who's going to see you go down and be able to come and get you. You know, when we were talking about that, I, I said, do you notice how we're all in a flight together and we're all headed wherever this is together? And, you know, we actually had one guy in the flight, the guy that flew trail, his job was to stop and pick up any of the people that were in trouble. And if you'd go down in a, lot, in a landing zone taking troops in or supplies in or anything else, you knew there was going to be somebody almost before you touched the ground there to pick you up. And of the, all of the times that I was shot down, there was somebody there immediately. I, I never had to wait or look or hope or wish or any of those things. I was actually shot down two weeks after I got to Vietnam the first time, flying with Rock Lungarella and 
and uh, we took a bullet through the fuel line, the main fuel line to the engine, and the engine quit just dead as a doornail, and we auto-rotated down into a rice paddy across the river from where the shooting was going on, and almost before we could get ourselves out of the seat and on the ground, one of our other pilots had landed in front of us, loaded us all up, and took us on in. And uh, I can remember thinking to myself, well, there's not much to that. You know what I mean? This is easy. But then... At the end of my first two months in, in Vietnam, I had been shot down twice, and I had 60 bullet holes in my helicopter. And I decided at one day, I wasn't going to keep track. I didn't want to know anymore how many bullet holes were in my helicopter. So I actually was shot down seven times, and I have two engine failures. So I have nine trips to the ground altogether in Vietnam. Let's talk about auto-rotation in these helicopters. If you lose the engine, weight of the airplane going through the blades makes them spin, and when you get down close to the ground, you can take that kinetic energy and convert it into lift and ease yourself down on the ground. You land as gently as a feather. So as long as your airplane is intact, it'll land without an engine. Where we really get in trouble with those is I once had a tail boom shot off of a helicopter, and then they flip upside down and precess and do all kinds of things. Then they become impossible to fly at that point. So I did get one on the ground, and I can remember thinking I was even with the water, and I thought I'd start pulling pitch, and when I did it, the plane stopped spinning and stayed right up, and I was able to ease it onto the ground, and we got out of it with only just a few minor injuries. But that wasn't the usual when you crash them. Wayne, what was it like? What did you see when you were flying over Vietnam? Vietnam was green when I was there and beautiful. And a regular trip to Saigon for me later in my career in Vietnam when I was an aircraft commander and had an aircraft of my own to play with, I'd fly along going through all the farms, low levels, smelling all the really beautiful flowers and crops. It was a wonderful trip, you know, with beautiful flowers and birds and truly wonderful. And then we'd get within proximity of Saigon where the river would go from kind of a lovely yellow-brown kind of a color to a dark, deep, rich black with dead animals and trash floating in it. And the smell would just radically change to that humanity, sewage, you know, rotten smell that came from being Saigon, being Ho Chi Minh City. Let's talk about the Tet Offensive. What exactly happened there? I flew for Tet. I actually started Tet at 2 o'clock in the morning. I'd been transferred to Saigon from Tainan, and I was flying for the uh, SEAL team down in the Runsat, down in Kanto. They had been telling us they were getting ready to have some sort of an offensive because they were, they were seeing all these troops come down. But they didn't know what it was going to be. And then kind of out of the clear blue sky that morning of Tet, Two o'clock in the morning, they started overrunning the airfield that I was at. And so I ran down at two in the morning and got in a helicopter and flew uh, 26 hours straight. So I flew first in a gunship for a little while. And then when it got so many bullet holes, it wouldn't work anymore. I got another helicopter that actually was, was a General Abrams helicopter. And I ripped all of his radios and stuff out of it and made a big ammo hauler out of it. And I hauled ammo to the guys that were caught in the BOQ, and I hauled ammo to the MPs that were caught down by the embassy, and I, I knew the city very well, and I, I knew where I was and what I was doing. And the Tet was a week of flying day and night for me, basically. And you were flying more than all the other pilots because you weren't drinking. The alcohol was a very prevalent drug in Vietnam and was not only encouraged, but the, almost every place had a club of some variety. And, and alcohol in the form of beer was delivered to the guys in the field. A bottle of Crown Royal cost $1.75. You know, alcohol was so cheap that it was just unbelievable. So the drinking culture was in full swing there, okay? I had been raised Mormon and was Mormon while I was in Vietnam, and so I didn't drink. And as a result of that, in the evening when everybody else was drunk, I was still sober, and when they needed a pilot, they went and got me. So 
at first I didn't mind flying all the extra time. After a while, it starts wearing on you, you know what I mean? I started working in surgery as a surgical nurse uh, with one of my friends that was a doctor just so that I wouldn't be there to go fly all these missions. But if you don't drink and the other 50 helicopter pilots in your unit do drink, you're going to get more time than they do. Wayne, I want to talk to you about the music in the late 60s when you were in Vietnam. What song reminds you most of flying helicopters in Vietnam? What was the music scene like in the air and on the ground in Vietnam? Well, remember that in the early 60s there we had you know, Martha and the Vandellas and we had all of the folk singers, you know, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and, and people, the peace singers and all that. But when Jim Morrison, whose dad was a Navy admiral, came on the on the scene, his first album, I was flying in a courier airplane coming back up from Saigon, and the weather was so bad that we had been on a weather hold trying to get out of Saigon, and finally we had enough of a clearance that they let us go, and we took up out of their low level kind of picking our way along in the dark and, and the rain and all that. And they said, oh, we have this new band called The Doors and a new singer called Jim Morrison. And they started playing Riders on the Storm. And you know, when I think of Vietnam, that song always comes to my mind because that's what we were doing is we were riding in the storm. You know, we were in the storm. You know what I mean? We were in the storm in our helicopter, making our way to Tainan, trying to stay dry. The army wasn't as well integrated as it is now, and the black men in the army all felt as if they had been put in units and made into cannon fodder, although I didn't think that was true and didn't see that ever happen. I did notice that their music was radically different than ours and that they played their music kind of to be in your face a little bit. They wanted to be sold. My roommate was black, and so I got to hear all the latest black music that came out of Detroit because he was from Detroit. John Jordan was his name, and Johnny used to get the music in from his family and play it for everybody and make tapes and all that so all in my background I have all this really great soul music and all this really great Aretha Franklin Pointer Sisters all of the black music that they played then was really spectacular and on the radio the Armed Forces radio they played everything they played classical they played religious they played rock and roll they played country music they played the black soul music they played everything and they had different hours for different things that they would repeat so that the black guys would all know that at 7 o'clock, for example, they were going to have the soul hour, you know what I mean? And, you know, wherever you were in Vietnam, all these black men would start coming out of bunkers and setting up radios and starting to dance, you know what I mean? And yeah. it was really fun. Music was a really big part of what we did and a big part of what went on. We all had shortwave radios, and we'd get our shortwave radio out in the middle of the night, and we'd find a station we could tune into in America or in Europe that was playing the music that we liked. And it would literally draw everybody in from all the tents around, and they'd come in and listen to the music. And the other thing that we did is everybody that went home, for any reason at all, when they would come home, they'd come home with as many albums as they could fit in their suitcase and still get it closed. And then those albums would be made onto cassette tapes, and you know we'd pass those around. Music was a really big deal for all of us over there. Back to Mandela and the Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. 
We're back on location with Wayne Ko, and we've recently spoken about Vietnam and the time that Wayne served as a helicopter pilot, and after Vietnam, Wayne spent a large chunk of time in Africa, West Africa in particular. You flew the president of Mali around. President of Mali bought a 727 from us, and we flew him around back to Marseille with all of his entourage of 27 people. You know, really the fun part of uh, being in Africa had nothing to do with the flying. Uh, we couldn't actually get parts very well for our airplanes, so we didn't really fly them very much. They sat on the ground most of the time because we didn't have tires, or we didn't have fuel, or we didn't have a seat check. There was always something needing in. In Africa, nothing happens like it's supposed to. It just kind of rolls along. I loved being in Africa. The first place I was in, in Africa was in Bamako in Mali. And, you know, I had gone there uh, initially as a chemical engineer to put a big reverse osmosis plant together for a Chinese pharmaceutical company. That's how I got to Mali. And when I got there, the president of Mali asked me if I knew where I could get an airplane. And uh, I knew Kevin Stamper, whose dad was Malcolm Stamper, at the time the chairman of the board at Boeing. So we didn't have any trouble finding him an airplane. You got $7 million, I get you an airplane. And then I went from flying him around and teaching his Malian pilots how to fly the 727. And then I had a chance to go down and work in Nigeria. And so I went down there and helped run part of the airline and do some of the work in Nigeria. So I was in Mali and I was in Upper Volta and I was in Nigeria. And in between those, I probably landed on every runway that's more than 40,000 feet in the whole that whole part of the world. I was a passenger on a twin otter one time that landed on a road by a gas station and the pilots took up a collection so they could buy enough gas to get us to the airfield. I mean, I had some things happen to me in Africa that were just truly unbelievable. And the Dogon people were right close to where we were in Bamako and that, they claim that's the oldest civilization on the planet. They're right there on the Sahara Desert and because there was no airplane to fly, I spent a lot of time on my motorcycle roaming around and looking at things and talking to people and practicing my French and, and fishing and collecting tropical fish. And I loved Africa. I had a great time in Africa. It wasn't really until I started noticing all of the people with bad diseases. It's hard to describe to people who haven't been to some of these third world countries the percentage of people that are essentially dying right in front of your eyes. They'll have scoliosis so bad that they walk on their hands and their feet at the same time and they'll, they'll be missing a limb so they'll They'll just attach a block to it and, and walk that way. And like I said, in the beginning, I was flying an airplane and fishing and hunting and charging around. And in the end, I was seeing all these people that I couldn't help. So towards the end of my five years in Africa, I got to where I was spending all of my money. I made $10,000 a month, and I was spending all my money on tennis shoes and drugs to take back to there. And by drug, you know, when you buy... 400 pounds of skin cream and you pay at the airline for 400 pounds of skin cream to go with you home back to Africa and that 400 pounds of skin cream for these people who have really bad skin diseases and we're, yeah, we're talking tropical skin diseases these are really bad 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 diseases where a little tiny bit of this cream clears it right up okay so here's my 400 pounds of stuff that I've gotten over there it's gone in an hour it's gone in an hour gone in an hour nobody got more than a little tiny dab and it was still gone in an hour and the tennis shoes we used to run over there because there was no weightlifting no gyms to go to so i tape up my ankles which are real weak guy diving and go running with the kids and it started out there'd be four or five kids to run with us and after we would run we'd buy them something to eat so then there was 10 kids and then there were 20 kids and there were 50 kids and then there were so many kids you couldn't get near the street and because we were all airline pilots and we had money. We spent our money on tennis shoes for these kids. We buy them all tennis shoes in Lagos. 
So I had 50 kids with tennis shoes that could go running with us. But the kids would run with their tennis shoes on with us and then take them off and hang them around their neck because they didn't want to get them dirty, they didn't want to wear them, they didn't want to get wet. And the fact that we insisted that they run with the tennis shoes on, that's the only reason they would put them on, aside from showing off that they had shoes. And I can remember one of the little kids came to me and he said, he says, um, can you get small enough shoes for me? And I looked at his foot and I said, yeah, I can, I can get small shoes for you. And he goes, well, he goes, the last two times that you've brought shoes, they haven't been any small enough for me. And so he said, if you could see if you could do about bringing some small shoes for him. So that time when I came home, I bought all zero, one, two, three sizes of shoes, the little small ones. The airlines would usually let me haul a lot of this stuff for free. But I took all the little bitty shoes back there and all the mothers, all the mothers from all the other kids, when they heard they had the swallow shoes, they ran down to the soccer field where I was and they ringed it so I couldn't get away from them. I had a little Peugeot truck and I had the shoes in the back of the truck and they ringed the truck and the one lady came and she said, she goes, this is very important to us. She goes, how many number zeros do you have? I said, well, I don't know. <laughs> how many number ones do you have? I said, I don't, I don't know. And she said, let us sort them and let us distribute them so that the right shoe goes to the right kid the right time and we'll show you what we're doing and I said okay and those women literally took that great big bag full of shoes all small sizes spread them all out matched them all up matched them all to a kid that was the right size you know what I mean and they all left happy it really was cool so those are the things I remember the most about Africa not really about flying flying an airplane after a while is like driving a car I mean how much do you remember about driving over here well not very much. And the same thing's true about flying. After you get so many thousand hours of flying time, it's, it's just a job. And the people around you and the kids and the running and the food and the, and the disease and the other things, those are the things you really notice. Those are the things you really work with. Those are the things you want to be you know, a part of. When I was in Bamako, in Mali, I, had a, I used to do a lot of fishing. And I had a travel pole and a spinning reel. And I would get to the hotel, the MTA in Bamako, and break up my fishing pole, walk down to the river and just start catching fish. Fast, every time I'd throw the lure in the water, another fish would come out. And these little kids would line up. They'd catch a fish, I'd, I'd catch a fish, I'd give it to them. I'd catch a fish, I'd give it to them. And I, so then I'd have this line going down the bank, all these kids I was catching fish for. I remember there's a little girl in the group who kept coming to the front of the line. I'd say, don't I know you? And she'd say, no. You know what I mean? Uh, and uh, I'd say, como ça va? And she, and she would look at me because she only spoke Bombada, you know, I mean? she didn't even speak French. That means you're really way out of town. But they knew that the little girl could always get a fish from me. And the little boys, I'd make them go to the end of the line or I'd send them on an errand or whatever, you know what I mean? And I could communicate with them, but since I couldn't communicate with her, I'd feed them. You know, I'd feed her these fish. And as my years went by living in Bamako and fishing and catching and doing all those things, I, I figured out a way to get... Um, food from the kitchen of the hotel that I was working at instead of throwing it all out. Got all that food for all those guys. And then I got the fish I would catch for them. And I had a, a huge following over there for my fishing skills. You, you can't believe the number of fish. There's no one fishes over there. Here's this river, Niger River. It's 100 yards across, stocked full of fish, and nobody fishes. Wayne, what was your most epic outdoor adventure when you were in Africa? Well, that's real easy. I was flying out of Bamako, and they had the Niger River Project going on, and that was in Gao and in Timbuktu. And I'd always wanted to go to Timbuktu, so I, I decided that I would go with my French buddies that were part of the Niger River Project, 
and go with them there. And being a chemical engineer, I could help them with the water quality issues. And the, they had a, an atomic absorption machine that didn't work. And I assumed it was because they didn't know how to work it. And I was right. So we got in a, in a little Peugeot 404 pickup truck and started from Bamako up to, to Timbuktu, which was about an eight-hour drive from there. And about halfway there, we hit a sheep, and it took out the radiator and the windshield of the truck we were in. And the guy that I was with had to hitchhike four hours back to Bamako while I kept the truck from being looted with all the supplies in the back of it and all that. And we changed out the radiator and the windshield and then drove it on up to uh, Timbuktu. But I spent the night in that thing listening to um, a tape of um, Pink Floyd playing The Wall. And it was a full moon that night. And in Africa, because it's so hot in the daytime, at night, when the sun goes down, the people all wrap up in clothes. So they all are dressed with hats and scarves and, and mittens and all these things. And it's still 75 degrees outside. And I, I can remember I was sitting in the back of this pickup truck and I was listening to my Sony Walkman playing playing the, the wall. And a, a herd of of cattle came by and I just they literally just split around me and the men that were driving the cattle walked up to the truck to see if there's anybody in there you know what I mean see what was going on and then when they saw me there they stopped to talk you know what I mean any stranger in Africa they immediately engage and they wanted me to come with them I said no I don't have to stay here with all these supplies and they wanted me to you know to leave the truck so they could send somebody back and clean it all out and stuff but it's still very much fun to be with these people out in the middle of nowhere where you speak some of part of a language and they speak some part of another language and everybody's trying to put all the words together to figure out what's going on. And I think that was the night I enjoyed the most out there, possibly because I was in the middle of nowhere. And, and it was the cattle herders first and then the sheep herders next and then the goat herders last as they brought the animals back in off of the Sahil, you know, back to the little villages at night. Still remember that as being really a very, very pleasant time over there. Let's play another song, Wayne. You know, if you're going to play a, a song for Africa, it needs to be uh, Pink Floyd in the wall, you know what I mean? And... Uh, Hello, hello, is there anybody in there? <laughs> the other thing is when I was in uh, Africa, a friend of mine was uh, a disc jockey at the local radio station. And I had a friend at the University of Utah that was a disc jockey at a radio station playing African music. So she would make all the new Michael Jackson, whatever was popular in the United States, a tape for me. And my friend in Bamako would make a tape for me of whoever the latest and greatest was African music in Africa. And I would trade their tapes. I worked 20 days on and 10 days off, so I went home every 20 days. So once a month, I'd come home, restock on tapes, and bring all this music for my friends at the University of Utah, where they had this African music show. It got so popular, the African music got so popular, that they were starting to ask for certain artists. You know what I mean? I didn't know one artist from the other artist, you know? I mean, there was my, my little disc jockey guy. I'd stop and, and we'd exchange these tapes. And then one day he said to me, he said, he said, I want to do something very nice for you. And he said, they're having a big dance and party in Sigu. And could I come? His band was playing in Sigu. And I said, sure, I'd love to go. So I, I went with him and my little truck down to Sigu. And when I got there, there were probably between 400 and 500 Malians dancing on the floor and on the stage there was probably 50 people in the band. I know you're from Africa so you already know about this, mm -hmm. okay? 
But there's 50 people in the band, everyone with a different instrument, and whoever the band leader would get up in the beginning and start to play, and then the rhythm section would come in, and the horns would come in, and the guys would come in, and pretty soon, all 50 people up on the stage are all playing music. And then they would play for half an hour. The guy would kind of stand out in front of him and wave at everybody, get everybody's attention, and stop. And, um, you know, I have recordings of that music. I still think it's just some of the most stunning music on the planet, all made by people with, you know, spoons and drums and instruments they made themselves. It's The Trail Has Traveled with Mandela. Wayne, we've talked about the first 40 years of your adventurous life, and I want to talk to you just quickly about how one would measure the growth of a mountain, because you took part in that when you were flying in South America, measuring the mountains there by gluing satellite reflectors on the tops of the mountains. And they found out that the satellites could run a radar scope. They put radar reflectors on top of things that they wanted to measure, and they could measure altitude very easily. So the tops of most of the major peaks that go from Canada all the way down to the tip of Tierra del Fuego all have sensors on them so that when the earth mapping satellites fly over they can measure how tall they are and can measure whether they're growing or whether they're receding. My job was to fly a twin engine Huey that was really good at high altitude on days where the weather was absolutely perfect and I knew the mountain peak I was going on there was no, usually nothing on top of them it's just a piece of rock and we would mix up the epoxy glue in the airplane and the guy whoever was flying as the crew chief for it would stand on the skid and I'd land right beside the mountain and he'd, he had a level that a bubble with a level on it and he'd have to set that level so the bubble was in the middle and we would have to sit there for about three minutes while it kicked off at altitude and then we'd fly off the mountain and that was it. We'd place these sensors on all the mountains that were above 10,000 feet or above 12,000, some number. They had some arbitrary number. And we just went around and put these things on top of mountains. It was really a fun job. Not difficult. Twin-engine aircraft, no weight to haul up there to speak of. Uh, really, only real major problem was usually the wind because usually at that altitude you're still carrying 50 or 60 knots of wind so you're really flying right up against that mountain and you have to be real careful when you get that close to anything that's that hard but you know at age 65 I wouldn't be interested in that job at all okay but it was really fun when I was doing it so Wayne the first 40 years you know you flew in Vietnam you flew in Africa you flew in South America you've got a British pilot's license you've got a French pilot's license what else is there to do well, that's when you become an engineer and you start working on computer things. I actually started a company and we made iodophores, polyvinyl and iodine complexes that we use in surgical scrubs. I mean, there are really a lot of things that are really fun to do besides flying. And for me, skin diving and sailboat racing and, you know, those sorts of things. I mean, there was a little while there where every year I raced a sailboat either to Hawaii or to Puerto Vallarta in Mexico. And I spent the rest of the year getting the boat ready to sail to either Hawaii or Puerto Vallarta. So whatever job I had at the time was usually a job I didn't really have to show up for very much that I could do on my own time, either as an engineer or with my own business. I had my own chemical companies. I made a lot of money making my own chemistry. So that left me free to do all the fly gliders and uh, go sailing and uh, go fishing crazy places. And of course, my really worst habit of all, skin diving. You know, I mean, I loved abalone dive and spearfish. Those would be, if I were, if I were able to do something every day, that's what I'd do. And when we retired and moved out here, 
I went fishing every day for seven straight years. I don't fish much anymore. I'm a little tired of it. Wayne, let's talk about that humongous tuna that you caught free diving when you were spearfishing. Well, I, I went down with a group of men off of Central America, and we were all trying to shoot something bigger than we had shot before. And I had a I had a new riffy spear gun that I'd gotten in Hawaii. They called it a, a big kahuna, and it was their biggest spear gun with uh, two spears and reels and big bands and all that. And I had been practicing holding my breath and sliding from about 60 feet down to about 90 feet. And I noticed every time I did that, the larger tuna and stuff would come in and investigate me when I would do that. So this one time I would just let go of the boat and I swam down about 40 feet and cleared myself and then started my drift on down, not moving. And sure enough, in my peripheral vision, I could see these two tuna turn and come right at me. And when they were right in front of me, right beside me, I shot the biggest one. And because you use breakaways and they do, they pull a load around. I swam back up and threw my spear gun on the boat. And I said, well, that was a really big one. And the guy said, well, you think it's 200 pounds? I said, it's easy 200 pounds. And when we lifted it up, I have a picture of it was at 273 pounds that I shot with a spear gun. So Wayne, for those listening who heard what you said about flying helicopters in the war and they think that that's exciting, what advice do you have for them about what you might have to deal with if you choose to pursue that as a lifestyle? I think that it, there's two parts of every story and the part about the saving people's lives and taking people when they need it to the hospital and the hauling medevacs and the hauling everything you know, that's a very interesting story. But the other part of the story is that when you come home, you find out you have post-traumatic stress disorder and that you don't sleep at night and that you're easily angered and you you use violence as a method of solving things when everybody knows violence doesn't work for anything, okay? And you find yourself in this thing where you only trust other Vietnam vets. You really don't have any friends that are not Vietnam vets. And the post-traumatic stress disorder that they got me just about killed me. And if it hadn't been for Bob Mertz, the VA, who said, you know, you need to stop that right now. You need to change your lifestyle. You need to quit hunting people for money. You got to quit flying helicopters. Buy yourself a big bag of dope and go down the sailboat and relax, okay? Quit pushing 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The two hours of sleep at night and working all the time is killing you. You need to, to change your life and start making it a little calmer. And, you know, at first I resisted those things, but I, after a while I realized that he was right. I couldn't just keep pushing. I couldn't just keep shoving. I, I couldn't be angry all the time. I had to start getting a grip on who I was and why I was doing it and you know I had a brother killed in Vietnam and I had a lot of my friends killed in Vietnam. It's hard to tell somebody about having PTSD. It's easy to tell them about the symptoms, okay? The symptoms are that you don't sleep at night. The symptoms are that you're easily angered. The symptoms are that you have intrusive thoughts. You know, those are the things that you get from post-traumatic stress disorder. And when you have it, getting out of it isn't very easy because apparently it takes all of the antioxidants that we are not allowed to have anymore. Right now, the Israeli government and the, and the Swiss government are all treating their combat vets with juiced marijuana leaves, cannabis leaves. They're not psychoactive. They press the juice out of them. They feed them to the people. And there's 188 antioxidants that we know work in their nervous system. And you can get these guys back to normal. I'm sleeping eight hours, 10 hours a night now. And uh, you know I'm not prone to violence. And my life is very calm. And I'm, I've gone from 275 pounds of water weight essentially back to now I only weigh about 225 and I feel good and I'm healthy and I sleep at night and when I do have PTSD symptoms I have a whole arsenal of things to keep them at bay you know when I get start getting a panic attack now I know I, I say well this is a panic attack I'm getting I'm not dying you know I'm not having a heart attack this isn't the end of the world for me okay this is a panic attack and 
I can either kill that panic attack with the joint or I can sit down and meditate on why this is happening to me and what's going on. And I can literally get myself to say, well, it's not very important to do this and start calming down and starting to get a grip on myself. Thank you so much for allowing me to interview you here in your home in Florida. Come back anytime. Thanks, Wayne. Let's end the show with three outdoor adventure tips, according to Wayne. Three outdoor adventure tips. Well, uh, first of all, um, if you're going to go flying, do it in a glider and really enjoy yourself where you can go out and and really experience the wind and the waves. And I love flying a glider. And right second to flying a glider, I like sailing a sailboat. It's it's all the same things. It's just like flying. It's keeping track of the same kind of stuff. And last but not least, if I had all the money in the world and could do everything that I wanted to do, every September the 1st, I'd show up at Fort Bragg in California and go abalone diving for a solid month. Month until I was so sick of eating abalone that I couldn't face another one. And that's what I would do. That, that would be my life, right? And I, of course, I have the sailboat and I have the other boats and stuff, and I, I don't have a glider, but you know, I'd stay outside and play. I have had the most fun in sailboats and the most fun in gliders and the most fun skin diving of all the things I know how to do. So I guess if those are the three, that's what you're getting tonight. <laughs> what song do you want to end the show with, Wayne? What song reminds you of your adventurous life? We were just talking about leaving on a jet plane. Plane, don't have time to take no fast train. Lonely days are gone. I'm going home. My baby just wrote me a letter. Every time I hear that song and I'm around any of my Vietnam buddies, everybody starts to sing at the top of their lungs and dance. So I think it affects all of us that way because it, that's how we felt over there. You know, we, I personally got two Dear Johns when I was there. <laughs> Some of the guys got more than two Dear Johns. I only had one girlfriend and got two Dear Johns. But anyway, I guess if that were the song I would want to play at the end of it, that would be it because it kind of sums it all up. I, I want to go home. And the one thing you get from being in Vietnam for a year or 13 months or whatever is you want to go home. You want to go home. You want to go home and sit in mom's kitchen, and you don't want to go anywhere else. You just want to go home. Namaste, Missoula. Mandela here. You have been listening to The Trail Less Traveled, the community's source for adventure information and inspiration. I want to thank my guest for this week, Wayne Ko. Wayne arrived in Vietnam at the age of 19 with only 200 hours of flying experience, He was shot down seven times, and at the end of his career, he had logged over 14,000 hours of flying experience. After Vietnam, Wayne flew the president of Mali around West Africa and traveled all over Africa on his motorcycle. Towards the end of his flying career, Wayne flew to the top of every mountain from Alaska to the tip of Argentina in order to attach a mirror on their summits. Follow us on Facebook. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and check out traillesstraveled.net to follow the show as it is recorded on location around the world. You can also see pictures and read biographies about the various guests featured on the show. My name is Mandela, your host of The Trail Less Traveled. Every week, I will be interviewing an adventurer about what they do, how they do it, and how you can start adventuring in a similar fashion. My safety tip this week is to pay attention to landmine warning signs. If you're traveling along the demilitarized zone in South Korea or in Vietnam, Cambodia, or anywhere in the world where there are landmines, do not step off the trail. There are landmine warning signs for a reason, and it's usually not worth losing a limb just to step off the trail even for a second. That's it for this week, Missoula. 
Until next time, get up there and shred the gnar. Because you know the thing about the gnar is...